when we look at the Four Noble Truths, the core of the Buddha's teaching, we look at the Second Noble Truth and we see that the cause of suffering, what we're trying to eliminate is, is craving or wanting. And so this question comes up time and again as to how we can how we can expect to make any progress in meditation when it requires some form of wanting just to practice meditation. <coughs> and so we get into this tricky situation of wanting not to want, of wanting to be free from wanting. And it really is an important dilemma because as we often see in much of our practice, we do want and expect a great many things. And by building up all of these expectations, we, <coughs> we often find ourselves putting, putting a stumbling block in, in front of us. It gets very, very difficult to, to progress because we're so... dead set on some idea that we've created in our mind of enlightenment or nibbana or freedom from suffering, freedom from craving. You know, it's a very hard pill to swallow, this idea that we should somehow uh, not want anything. And so we often swallow this pill thinking it it's got to be good for us. And yet, knowing in s deep down inside that we bitterly resent this, this medicine, or we, 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 don't e we don't even want the cure. We couldn't imagine a life without wanting. And yet, we, we force it on ourselves. And we create this idea of how, how we think it must somehow be wonderful to be free from clinging, free from craving. And it, it falls so far short of, of the reality of freedom from suffering that it, it, it becomes sort of a, um, a means of tricking oneself or deluding oneself. Uh, sort of akin to, in other religions, how you... Well, in, in many religions, we, we, we push ourselves to believe something. People, they push themselves to believe something the same sort of faith-based uh, practice where you're practicing out of this belief that it's somehow going to be like this or this or this and and we as a result we, we miss the point and this is well discussed in the Buddhist texts as I've mentioned before the first thing the Buddha said is that well you do need some sort of intention to practice and just as you need an intention to come here to listen to me teach, um, you need an intention just to get to our center, and then it takes intention to lift yourself up to practice. But on the other hand, in many cases, the Buddha has explained that it's easy to overreach the goal by by 
setting the goal up and, and, and working towards something that's totally impossible. You know, expecting ourselves to be perfectly mindful <coughs> and not, as a result, not practicing, not, not appreciating the small steps we're making. And not, not being able to see them because they're so, so small. We're expecting big steps and big insights and big realizations. And so we, we, we fail to see the benefits that, that are coming step by step. <coughs> and if we were to think about it correctly, we could see that, you know, over a course of many, many days, small steps are actually quite uh, productive. And so I, I just wanted to explain a little bit about, from my understanding, what it is that we should be wanting and, and how we should relate to want in regards to our Buddhist practice, how we should understand the practice in regards to wanting and in regards to overcoming hindrances, and the hindrance of expectation, for example. There's a story in the Tipitaka of this angel that comes to see the Buddha and asks him where one can find the beginning where, where one can find the end of the universe or the end of the world. And the story goes that he he had he had in a previous life been a an ascetic and he had practiced tranquility meditation, concentration based meditation, focusing on a concept or whatever. And he was able to, as a result, f leave his body and through astral travel was able to fly at incredible speeds. And say he could cross the ocean in one step. And so he flew through the through the universe trying to find the end. He flew with his mind. And he flew for a, a hundred years till the or till the, the span of his life was ended after a hundred years. And he died not not getting to the end of the universe. But as a result of his good practices, he was he was born as an angel, and he came to see the Buddha and asked him. He said, "You know, this is the case. Where can one find the the uh, the end of the universe?" <coughs> it's interesting. There's a parallel here, a very clear parallel between this sort of idea and, and modern physics. And I've really started looking at this in a, in a sort of a broad way, the, the, the goals of physics, the goals of intellectual investigation in general, which are often derided in Buddhism, but it's never really hit me quite, quite as, uh, as, hard, as strong as, as it has in the past couple of days, just thinking about it, that There's really no 
no intrinsic benefit to be gained from the, the vast majority of what we do as, as human beings. And just thinking back to the cave, the times of, of living in caves and being hunters and gather hunter and gatherers or whatever, foragers. Looking at the the animals in ancient times before the humans came around. And you know, looking at the ancient the, the Buddhist texts and how they describe ancient times as being much less um, much less hostile. Of course, whether this is true or not is up for speculation, but according to the Buddhist texts in ancient times, it would have been far less hostile in in nature, far less um, survival of the fittest or uh, in some ways more more of a peaceful place or in many places maybe peaceful, maybe just in certain places. human beings were maybe a lot more peaceful. And we see, we look at scientific uh, advancement you know, in terms of finding the, finding the beginning of the universe, finding the end of the universe, understanding the totality of the universe, finding the, the smallest particles, coming to understand all of these things. And it just it 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 seems an an incredible waste of of time and effort that we're um, we're spending on these these activities where we could be doing things like meditating as an example first of all it's something that comes to one who meditates particularly that um, the billions and billions of dollars and time and effort really the whole goal of the human race seems to be to advance in ways that are um, pointless. You know, to have this great techno technology we've become so enamored with and just the examination of whether or not this is indeed progress to have iPhones and computers to have um, wireless internet. We, s we talk about how, how, how how much progress it is, and uh, we don't look at the the ramifications and the the problems that it brings. I was I was remembering the words of of Mahasi Sayadaw in one of his books that I had read. That he said, <clears throat> if you've never seen something, you can't be attracted to it. And at the time that that. It seemed somehow wise, but I didn't quite understand it, or I, I didn't understand the truth of it. It seemed it seemed a bit strange, or or, or 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 perhaps easy to understand, but not really meaningful. But he spent some time dwelling on this and explaining how if you've never seen something, you can never become attracted to it. And I thought, well, you know, maybe you could create it in your mind or so on. But what you can see through meditation is actually the mind is, is really only attracted to the things that it's seen before, the things that it remembers as pleasing, as bringing happiness. And it struck me, I, I find, I, it finally occurred to me how meaningful and how important this statement is. And 
how it really gives so much importance to the reclusive life, the meditative life, and how it points to such a great danger with material progress. Because if we didn't have all, and the, the obvious point is if we didn't have all of these things, we wouldn't want for them. We wouldn't crave for them. And so what happens is we, we, we look for new things. We look for something new, not really knowing what it is. When we sit down and meditate, we don't crave for it. But when we make it, suddenly it's this, it's this incredible new thing. And when someone sees it or, or even just hears about it and creates the mental image in their mind, they want it. But once they see it or hear it or smell or taste, that this new thing, this more advanced, um, more intense and more immediate pleasure, uh, it, it takes hold of their mind. And it, it becomes uh, something that they must have. The story Mahasi Sayada gave is, is something a little bit different. He was explaining about this, this man who refused to get married. He had been, he had been reborn from the Brahma world where, of course, there's no sensuality. And so when he was born, he didn't want to get married. And his parents were quite upset by this. And so they pushed and pushed and pushed him until finally he, he went to a goldsmith. He was quite rich. And he went to a goldsmith and had him fashion a, uh, a, a, a beautiful statue of a woman and under his direction fashioned this out, out of gold or else he fashioned it himself, I can't remember but it was the model of the perfect woman. And he said to his parents, if you can find a woman who is as beautiful as this, then I will marry her. And so they sent it around to all the villages and all the towns in the country. And eventually they found some woman. They, they went to one village and the people said, why is that statue of... Why are you, why did you, why are you dragging around that statue of our headman's daughter? And they said, you have a daughter who looks like, you have a girl who looks like this? And so they brought, brought these people to see this, this woman and turns out that she did look exactly or very close to the statue. And so they went back and told this man and suddenly for the first time he, it, it just came up in, from inside of him. Suddenly he had this, this uh, romantic attraction towards this woman. And so they called her to come to, to, to live with him, but on the way she died. It's an interesting story. She, she, was, she was so fragile. You know, some very beautiful people can often, or you know, attractive people can be often quite fragile. Especially in India, they may have been, um, had, had interesting ideas at the time about beauty. Nowadays you see these people who become anorexic just to be beautiful according to the standards of beauty. And so on the way to see to meet him, she, she, she died of some of fatigue or, or of, of the, just the wear and tear of the travel. And so he became totally um, distraught, insane with this, this desire to have this woman that he could no longer have. And it was someone, something that sh someone that he had never even seen. So this is where Mahasi said, it, it, the truth is you can never become really attracted to something that you've never seen. And, and so that is an interesting thing that 
um, his attraction was perhaps to the, the golden statue in one sense, but on the other hand, it was, it was an attraction to an idea. Um, when we create these ideas in our mind, and so he had this idea in his mind of this woman. But anyway, talking here specifically about, it's getting quite far off track, but talking specifically about uh, our, our attempts to find the limits of the universe, to find the in, en entirety of the universe, you know, the final unified theory and so on, is, um, is leading to, to a, an incredible amount of, of uh, addiction and attraction and, and, and aversion and repulsion. It's leading to wars, it's leading to um, I mean, just the intensity of society our need for more and more of this technology, for more and more knowledge, for more and more uh, worldly advancement. And so some of it's just for pure sensuality, but a lot of it's in the name of scientific advancement. And really, so what? If we get the unified theory, then we'll be able to make better bombs or, or, or whatever. Who knows? Maybe we'll be even able to go to, to distant stars and, and other planets to start new colonies. But, you know, it's, it's kind of, in one sense, you think, boy, I'd hate to be the, the poor planet that got us. That had to, had to be invaded by people like us. Talk about space invaders. Because we haven't done the important work, of course. And so anyway, the Buddha, to this angel who came to him and said, where is the end of the end of the universe? The Buddha said, "You can't find the end of the world, the end of the universe there in in that way." He said, "I've tried it before. I tried that before myself, flying away to the end of the universe and died before the end of the universe came, before it got to the end of the universe." He said, "It's impossible. You can't find the end of the universe in that way." And what he said, and this is very important for what we're dealing with here. He said, the end of the universe is within this six-foot frame, within this body. Within this being that is six feet tall and two feet wide and one foot thick. This is, uh, this is where you find the beginning of the universe, the beginning of the world, the end of the world. You find the cause for the world. You find the path that leads to the end of the universe. And so why I think this is important to the idea of wanting, to the idea of expectation, of, of, of striving in practice, is that I, wa I want to make the point that what we're striving for is to not strive. What we're reaching for is to not reach. So our practice should have a quality of just practicing. We're not practicing for anything, we're practicing. It's the meditation itself that is the point. The meditation is the, uh, is the path. And what's it a path to? It's a path to, to the end of the unit, to the goal, which is also here within ourselves. It's leading us here. Um, th this is perhaps the most important point, is that what we want is to be uh, to be here and to be now, to be in the present. So when we're sitting, to, to actually know that we're sitting, 
to have our mind with the sitting, to walk and to know that we walk, to be free from the wanting, to be free from the mind that takes us into the past and takes us into the future. So that when something good disappears, we yearn for it. Uh, in this case, so that we don't, we stop yearning for it. We can do away with the yearning so that when we're having to undertake something trying or difficult, we're able to do away with the, the idea of when it's going to be over, when it's going to be done. Our existence becomes infinite, becomes, if you will, permanent. Our, our being, the, the, our life becomes permanent, you can say, because we've done away with the future. We've done away with the past. We come back to the present moment. What we're, we're reaching for is, is inside of ourselves. What we're aiming for is right here and right now. So the meditation is not to attain anything. It's to let go of everything. If you want to, if you want to be happy, there's a, there's the, there's this poem that comes from the Jatakas, that uh, this jat the Jatakas, the past life stories of the Buddha, were all translated into English about oh, over a hundred years ago, and at the time it was it was sort of in vogue to to translate and and rearrange the words to make poetry. So there are these very poetic verses from the Pali verses. Um, and this one verse goes, For every desire that is let go, a happiness is one. He who would all happiness have must with all lust be done. And so you could say that's a, a Buddhist idiom or a Buddhist motto, um, a Buddhist verse. That every, everything we let go of, every, everything we are able to be free from, when we're really and truly free from it, when we really and truly let go, we, we, we become happy, we become at peace. And so our aim is, is, is here, is now, is the default, is to get back to a default state. The state that we thought was the default state, you know, the way we were born and raised, the old way before we started meditation, we, meditation, we thought, well, that was the default. And now we're doing something special. Well, actually, it's it's very special what we're doing, but it's special because it's bringing us back to normal. It's bringing us back to who we think we are. We think we're ordinary people until we come to meditate, and then we realize how crazy we are, how messed up we are. It's It can be discouraging sometimes. Meditators often feel a lot of self-loathing because they start to see, they, they think they must be a terrible person terrible meditator, terrible person. Uh, usually that's something we've carried around with us, is this self-loathing. But in meditation it can come out quite strong. Uh, until we start to realize that, that this is the, the, the ordinary state of human beings, it's not very, not very normal. We see that what we thought was, was who we are was actually this... this built up, uh, formed, created state, constructed. It's a, 
It's a artificial construct, our being, our entity, who we are, and all of the many attributes we give to ourselves is, is totally artificial, and in many cases chaotic and, and unsustainable, and the cause of, of a great amount of suffering for us. So this is why when we walk, we seem to do these stupid things like just saying walking, walking, or stepping right, stepping left. I mean, it seems like such a, a silly thing to do, and it doesn't seem like it's going to get anywhere. And that's really the point, is to stop us from, from going places, to retrain our minds to be the way we, we think we already are. We think we are here. We think, you know, we say, yesterday I was there, today I was here, this morning I was this and that. But as we all know, our minds are, are, are certainly, certainly hardly ever there. Our minds are all over the place in most cases. And so we're trying to show this to ourselves. We're trying to see what, what, uh, what a mess we're making by running all over the place. We're trying to see the, the, the dangers in this or the disadvantages, the, the problem with... <coughs> the problems that are inherent in not being present. There was once a king that came to see the Buddha and he asked, he asked him, why is it that these monks, he said he can't believe it, he eats like four meals a day, and he can't believe these monks who eat only one meal a day, why they are so radiant, and why they are able to keep their color and, and their vigor and uh, their health why they even seem radiant, more alive than, um, than people who eat all, eat all the food they want and, and enjoy all the sensual pleasures they want and so on. And the Buddha gave another verse, and I don't think I can remember it. Um, oh yeah, for the past I do not, for the past they do not mourn nor for the f future weep. They take the present as it comes, and thus their color keep. Uh, and then something about lusting after the future, or some uh, lust, uh, worrying after the past, or some some uncertain future future deed dries a young, dries a young man's vigor up just as when you cut a fresh green reed. And this is a paraphrase, but it, it sums up a very important passage of the Lord, Buddha, Lord Buddha's teaching. And the passage is, when you, when you cut, just as when you cut grass, it becomes uprooted from the, from the earth and dries up. In the same way, when a person is lost in the past and lost in the future, is always looking at the time <laughs> in meditation and uh, always thinking about what's going to come next and what we're going to do after this or thinking about the past, what went before, what's finished already. It dries you up. Why? Because you're uprooted from reality. And this is another important point, is that the only, th the only reality that is truly real, the only thing that is truly real in this in this universe is, is the present moment, here and now. Nothing else in this universe is real. Nothing else in your existence is real but the present moment. 
the past is gone. In fact, the past, you could say, it never really existed. It was, it's just the present moment, the changings of the present moment and the effect that it has on our minds and our bodies and the echoes that come as a result of it. It's like when you, um, when you shout in a canyon and then you hear the echo and you ask yourself, is that echo in the past? You know, because I shouted, it's in the past already. And you say, that's, that's, the, that's my voice in the past. Or when I record my voice here and, and put it up on the internet and someone listens to it, it's, it's like they're listening to the past. But we know this isn't true, that it, it only has an effect. It changes. Everything we do changes the present moment. So instead of yesterday I gave this talk and today it's on the internet, it's, the present moment is changing so that my, my voice becomes um, a reality in, in some, somebody's computer and a sound coming out of some speakers. And the future, of course, is even more ephemeral. We think about, uh, or even more insubstantial, we think about the future as being like this or that, and in the future there's this meeting, or in the future there's this problem or that problem, and, and it becomes a, its whole entity. Suddenly we give it a, a, a self, we give it a persona, and it's like this big blob that's hanging over us. And yet, all that is really is our own thoughts, and and we can see this. We can catch ourselves in this when we have our. We catch ourselves saying, "I'll say this. They'll say this. I'll say this. They'll say this. I'll say this, and I'll do this and that and the other thing." When I get back, then I'm going to this and this and this. And nine times out of ten, when we get back, it's totally different from what we thought, and we never have a chance to say the things we were going to say. We say them, and then it doesn't have the intended response because it's totally artificial. We want to do all these things, and so we're not ready for the real um, trials or, or, or tests that we have to face. And so we can see how, how we're totally, it was totally a, an, an artificial creation. We can often be afraid of meeting someone. Um, we think, oh, that person's really angry at me. I'm, you know, when I see them, then they're going to get angry at me. And then when they come, then there's no problem. When we, you know, we, we do something and then we, we think our parents are going to yell at us and, and they don't yell at us or so on. We, we, we got really angry at someone, they got really angry at us, we had a fight. And the next time we see them, all of a sudden they're not angry anymore. And if we're still angry at them and we yell at them, the next time they'll get angry at us again. This often happens. You get angry at each other, someone gives in and, and comes back and wants to be friends again. The other person is still angry. So the first person goes away and gets angry, then the second person you know, realizes, oh, that person wanted to, wanted to make up, and so they stop being angry. You know, the first person's angry again, the first person comes back, and so on and so on, until finally it's, it's uh, irreconcilable. So I hope this this is sort of uh, in some way useful. It, it's a it's a difficult thing to explain because it's all semantics. We're talking about wanting. We're talking about goals. We're talking about um, putting out effort and 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 how to balance all of these things. And yet, it's pretty cl clear in the Buddha's teaching that even things like effort is just the balancing of of your faculties. 
the effort which we're looking for is to is is not to push 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 or make it more and more difficult for ourselves sort of on the contrary it's to find this perfect balance um, where we're we're not giving rise to unwholesome states and when they do come up we're getting rid of them we're not uh, we're developing wholesome states and then we're we're cultivating and 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 nurturing them when they do arise and that's a pretty simple process i mean it's it's not easy it's simple it's simple and very very difficult there's not much to it and this is often the case for for Western meditators that we have to admit that we overanalyze and we expect much much more from things um, than they actually are, and we, it's 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 hard, it's incomprehensible, in fact, that walking is just walking, that the walking meditation really has no uh, there's no implication. It's just walking. And that doesn't mean anything to us, right? Because we're building spaceships and flying to the moon and uh, atom bombs and blowing things up and so on. And we're developing cures for cancer and AIDS and so on and so on. And saying, we'll rid, the, we'll rid the world of disease and sickness. And the Buddhists are here smirking and saying, man, he's never going to, you know, you're never going to come up, you're never going to end sickness if you keep cutting up rats and feeding them poison and so on. Yeah, many people don't realize what goes on in universities and laboratories. Um, they sort of th sort of have an idea that it must be going on, but they don't realize how prevalent it is. Um, I mean, I don't even know the extent of it, but from what I've heard, it's, it's quite atrocious to think of the millions and millions of, of animals that are tortured every day in the name of, of health in the name of well-being, in the name of, of physical happiness. And from a Buddhist point of view, it's, 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 it's uh, abominable and it's, uh, it's ludicrous to think that somehow this is going to save lives or, or bring physical health because it totally warps the, the, the minds of the people who do it. And so you look at these scientists and they look like rats in a cage and they end up uh, spending all their time in laboratories and they're just rats in the cage by the end. And of course when they die then they become rats in the cage. And so in the end often we have to take a step back and, and you know, as human beings and kind of look and see, yes we're making progress but in what direction? And certainly in terms of Buddhism, Buddhism, it's not considered progress at all, unless you're coming back to uh, ground zero, unless you're coming back to the here and the now, the place that you keep leaving, the place where you were born and where you started. Unless you can come back to, keep com unless you're coming back to that place, you're not getting anywhere. You can progress as far and as wide as you like, and you'll never reach any meaningful goal. And so for, for us meditators, this is even more important. We have to get this and understand it, that we're not trying to go anywhere. We're not trying to become anything. We're trying to look, look at the things that arise and see the knots that we've tied ourselves up in. And through 
protracted, um, methodical, patient, and energetic practice to simply untie these knots. It's something that takes wisdom and insight and detailed introspection. You know, just as with a knot, you have to really focus on the knot and you have to pull and prod. You can't just pull it all out at once. You can't just cut it and make it go away. You have to pull and prod and, and, and just like a big knot. You know, not one pull is going to get rid of it, but pulling and prodding and even the biggest knot after many hours or you know, minutes or, or hopefully not hours, but even big knots, you can untie them. Something that looked totally untieable just by pulling and pulling and pulling and prodding and prodding. You can untie so many things, so many knots. So our practice should reflect this, that we're, we're not trying for anything and we're not pushing for anything. We're just experimenting, we're just looking. We're gaining knowledge about ourselves. It's not something that you can just run at and, and, and break open. It's something that you really have to you know, look deeply at and say, okay, these are the problems that I have in my mind, the things that are weighing me down, causing me stress and suffering, and looking at them. When we practice, it can often be unpleasant. Well, why is it unpleasant? Practice, walking back and forth should not be unpleasant. Sitting still should not be unpleasant. It's not boring. It's not uninteresting. If you're bored, there's a problem with your mind. There's a problem with the way you're looking at the situation. This is the Buddhist point of view, that there's nothing that in the world that's boring. You've judged it. You've made a judgment that this is um, undesirable or unsatisfying. That this is uh, unacceptable. And so as a result, you become bored. You become angry. You become frustrated. So I hope this is in some way given some, shed some light or given some ideas on how we should approach our practice and kind of made it uh, maybe a little bit more easier to practice. So um, many of these things I've talked about before, but you know, it's nice to put them into a speech format. And uh, so here it is. That's the Dhamma for today. Now we'll continue on with our meditation. First, mindful prostration and then walking and then sitting.